Welcome to Trine Day, The Journey, episode one, the podcast for Trine Day Publishing, featuring publisher, founder, Chris Milligan. I am Bruce DeTorres. We've got a book coming out next March in 2021, and it is an honor to be part of this podcast. So Chris, say hi. How are you? How to do? Thanks. Chris, what is your goal for this podcast? What do you want people to think about and do from just this episode and from the subsequent episodes that you've got planned? I want them to understand that it is a journey that you go on once you are introduced to this material about other ways that the world really works. And it can be scary at times, okay? but it's a good journey. How is it good? You understand how the world is really work really works. I mean, you uh, uh, I hate to sound trite, but you you grow up. I went through my version of that too in in life and exploded with zeal. When I was young, it was Vietnam and Watergate and the Arab and Israeli conflict. And you would watch the news and I would get so upset. These problems were just unsolvable. And then when I was challenged to look at the truth behind 9-11 and recognized how phony that story was, I got thrilled because suddenly what I thought we were incompetent to solve, you know, those problems, I realized they were not meant to be solved. They have a, they have a whole other purpose. If not, they're intentionally inflicted, meaning we humans are not these bumbling, fumbling, incompetent things that just have these problems and we can do nothing about. They were intentional. And I also felt there's a dragon to slay. And I'm going to assume that's part of your zeal in publishing books that show people yeah. what's really going on. The truth has set you free and you want to set others free. Yeah. I mostly, I want to caution people on uh, falling off the cliff because there's a lot of cliffs that are set up deliberately for you to fall off because I've seen so many people, you know, get lost because of some prejudices or, 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 or some things because it's very easy to uh, just say, all these people are just a bunch of devil worshipers and then just spend a lot of time just hating. Okay. And, and that's not really the, uh, uh, the way to go. You, you, you just need to understand it. And, you know, I've thought for many years that the best way to solve things is, is, is transparency. Because, you know, you can shout from the rooftops and get people to understand, well, there's a problem, there's something going on, okay? But then, you know, how do we solve it? What do we as a people do, okay? And that's one thing I really like about this pandemic is this pandemic has shown the paucity of what has been happening. When you look at these secret societies, one of the first things they did was to get a hold of our education system and dumb us down and, and get, into the, get us into the position where they can game us into these little groups, okay? And have, you know, okay, it's time for this group to stand up. Now it's time for this group to stand up and scream. It's basically divide and conquer. And uh, we need to get past that. And to me, the only way that we can get past that is with an understanding of what is going on and an understanding of what, it, what has happened. We have been under 
huge psychological warfare, especially here in the United States of America, because quote unquote, the powers that be do not like a republic where the people are empowered. They started working against that before the ink was dry on the Constitution. It's very interesting. You have, you know, the first anti-Illuminati scare in the, in the late 1700s. And uh -huh. one thing you notice there is you have uh, the start of this uh, basically standing on a dime and, and turning around and saying, oh, it's not me, it, it's everybody else, and, and creating all this other dissension so that people don't know, you know, what to think, what to believe. The more we understand how we got to where we are, the better we can get to hopefully where we're going, which is this is one planet. And like President Kennedy said, we all breathe the same air and we all have children. Let's get along and have a nice time on this planet that's swirling through space. Why are people hitting each other over the heads? There's really no reason for it. We are going to explore how you came to be the publisher of these books that are not touched or wouldn't be touched by mainstream or corporate. And I'm going to turn it right over to you and let's have a conversation about this. Well, this is uh, Trying Day, the journey, the, the beginning. In the uh, 70s, I was thinking of, of doing a publishing house and I was thinking of calling it uh, Good Day uh, Press. Uh, but I looked around, there was already a place called Good Day Press, so I, uh, I was looking in the uh, dictionary, I liked the dictionary, and I came across the word trying, and it meant auspicious. And I said, well, that's kind of like good, and I'm a songwriter, and I like uh, double meetings, and, and trying day kind of sounded like a trying day, and going to work can be a trying day. So uh, trying day it, it was. And I started, it was because of my dad. And my dad was, uh, had been involved in intelligence. It hadn't really been talked about in the, in the house much. But oh, when I was a little kid, uh, I was uh, part of a, a CIA family sent to uh, Indonesia. I'm uh, 70 years old. And in the uh, late 60s, I came home one day and my dad, uh, we were outside in the uh, driveway. And my dad looks at me and he says, uh, you know, they're trying to opiate your whole generation. It was the first time I'd ever heard the word opiate, but I knew what it meant. I told my dad, I says, I don't uh, really, uh, you know, see that stuff. I just smoke a little pot. And he says, well, I don't care. You're just making money for them. And then uh, a little bit later on, the day before my 20th birthday, he took me aside. And I've told this story many times, and it's out there. He uh, took me with a, a professor from Vanderbilt, Dr. D.F. Fleming, and said, he sat me down, looked at me, and said, the Vietnam War is about drugs. There's these secret societies behind it all. And I'm thinking, okay, he's talking about the, the mafia, the only secret society I could think of. And then he says, and communism's all a sham. These same secret societies are behind it all. It's all a big game. And at that point in time, I, I think my daddy's nuts. And, and then a little light bulb comes on my head. And I think, oh, my dad's telling me to, he's going to have the drug talk with me. He hadn't had the other one. I was already married and had a uh, six-month-old kid. Uh, so I'm straightening up and, and uh, waiting for my dad to say, you know, stop smoking pot. Uh, he doesn't do that. They tell me all about his intelligence career. And then they uh, make another uh, strange statement talking about the Vietnam War and an assessment for Eisenhower says that 
they felt that they were playing out a lose scenario in the Vietnam War, which uh, again uh, didn't compute it at all with me. And then they started talking about propaganda. And uh, this is when you learned your father was in intelligence. Well, I'd known it before uh, from conversations with my big brother, and but it had never been talked about at the family table or, or taken aside and said anything about it. So, was there was there any fear about that at the time? Uh, no, there was. Uh, mostly, it, it just didn't compute. It didn't make any sense. I mean, and, and my dad hadn't been a uh, John Bircher or anything like that. I mean, my dad, you know, he he wasn't a, a radical person at all. So it just was. Uh, and I was having a lot more fun. Uh, I had uh, started a record store. I was putting on uh, rock and roll dances. I was having a good time. So it, it just, uh, no, it wasn't scary. And then um, I started to tell some uh, friends of mine uh, about what my dad told me. And, uh, and they said, well, you're a conspiracy theorist. And I said, well, what's a conspiracy theorist? And I, I took that on as a intellectual discipline to study and, and to study the subject I call CIA drugs, because, you know, that's kind of what my dad had, had talked about. And uh, being a, a hippie and, you know, uh, I saw a few drugs now and then. So I w they were an interesting subject. Then uh, about 1988, uh, I came across the book America's Secret Establishment by Professor Anthony Sutton. And that made sense of what my dad told me because the whole thing about the same secret society, communism's not a sham, and, and all that just didn't make any, any sense at all. It he, said, he said it was a sham, right? Yeah, he said communism yeah. was a sham. The same secret right, societies right. were behind it. It was all a big game. Those were his words. And it, it didn't make any sense. Uh, Anthony Sutton's book was the first thing that I came across that started to help me to understand what my dad was saying. Right. So in the 70s and 80s up to that point, you were... You were reading about CIA drugs, but kind of now and then, or? I didn't really understand it. So I didn't have a, I was still trying to get my oars in the water about the whole subject, you know, to, to try and understand it. And it really wasn't until after he died and I was going through his papers that I really had an aha moment of understanding the whole ball of wax uh, because of uh, the meeting that he had in 1956 with Lansdale. I call this, the, you know, the journey is because I, I heard these things from my dad. I didn't believe him, didn't, under, didn't, didn't understand it at all. I mean, you know, at that time I was being subject, uh, they're trying to draft us off and, you know, to, to go kill people. And then, you know, my dad and a professor are telling me, well, uh, they're playing out a lose scenario. That comes no way close to computing, along with the stuff about the, the riskies. So, you know, I was just trying to, to you know, understand right. how, how things worked. And so I, I worked a lot on intelligence, you know, trying to understand how intelligence operations work. And, and, and Be, Before 88, before Sutton's book came yeah, in your yeah, hands? Yeah, okay. yeah, because before that, I had done a um, independent study of magic and mysticism. I came across Edgar Casey and Aleister Crowley when I was in high school. And I said, hmm, these are some interesting people. And so I, 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 I did that study and I'm very glad I did because once I finally un, um, came across Skull and Bones and mm -hmm. studying how secret societies work, 
my study of magic and mysticism came in came in very handy in, in, in understanding how how they operate. I, if I saw a bookstore, I'd pull over, I'd, I, I, I'd go in, and I'd say, take me to your conspiracy section. And all of every store I went into, whether it be Catholic, Mormon, feminist, radical, straight, whatever, uh, there would be at least one book. These are basically what are known as screeds, okay? There's, you know, I can, because I can find a book that, you know, blames it on the Jews, blames it on the Catholics, blames it on the Mormons, blames it on the hippies, blames it on the secular humanists, what, whatever you want, you, you know, you can find a book that does that. And I says, gee, these are kind of like formula books, you know, trying to get people into little clubs and, well, we don't like you over there and they don't like you and, you know, getting people to, to, to fight each other. And how I do research is, you know, I'll read a book and hopefully it has a bibliography or something like that at the end. And I'll go to the bibliography and I'll go get those books, read those. And, you know, pretty soon you're away from these screeds and you're into dusty tomes about, oh, um, banking and social history and, you know, the drug trade and different things. The hardest things I had found was to find books about uh, secret societies. And so that's why I was very thrilled when I came across uh, his book in 1988. Were you doing any writing during those years yourself? Um, I was writing songs, but not really uh, articles. I started to write probably sometime in the, in the 90s. Uh, about well, that, that, yeah. bones. you said mm -hmm. that was a big aha for you, right? Mm -hmm. What was the aha? And then what did that turbocharge over the next 10, 20, 30 years for you? Well, uh, suddenly it, it gave me a framework to understand uh, my, that one statement of my dad, okay, that communism is all a sham, these same secret societies, because he never said skull and bones. He just said uh, uh, secret societies. And the next big aha moment was, uh, his 1956 trip, okay, we were, I was uh, six years old. We were told mom and dad are going to, he, dad's going to write a book called The Church in Southeast Asia. And uh, we were going to spend this uh, last quarter of the school year, the summer, and the first quarter of the next year with our grandparents. We got dropped off in, in Oregon and folks went off to uh, went to Japan, Philippines, a uh, whole bunch of places. When that trip was over, dad didn't write a book and things really changed for our family. We'd been living on this uh, 10 acre farm outside Fairfax and we moved to a, another house in Fairfax. Then, and my dad then, uh, before, before he had gone to the trip in 56, he'd been working for a TV station. Uh, also, we were told for many times that he was a salesman. Uh, then he became a um, speechwriter for uh, Senator Wiley of, of Wisconsin. And then all of a sudden, he became uh, a vice president of a college in, in Tennessee, and, and we moved in, in 1959 to Nashville, Tennessee. It was 1957, yeah, 1957 we moved to Nashville, and then 1959 moved from Nashville to, to Oregon. Uh, what he told me later on was that's when he left the uh, agency uh, completely. From my perspective as just a little kid, you could see the hit to the family finances. My, my mom went to work. She hadn't worked for quite a while. She went to school teacher. And then uh, within less than two years, my, my dad was teaching school too, teaching junior high school. When I finally understood what had happened with uh, 
finding uh, Professor Sutton's book in, in late 1988. My dad was very sick with uh, Parkinson's and, you know, really wasn't himself. He was hard to talk to, and then he, he, he soon died in early 1990. About that time, I was really doing a lot of research into Chiang Mai, Thailand. It's the second largest city in Thailand, and it's got, it's a, it's a heroin city. There's a four-lane highway to the Golden Triangle, and all the major banks have branches there. Looking at my dad's papers, and I seen that trip in 56, he'd been in Chiang Mai. So I'm thinking, great, I can ask my mom how big Chiang Mai was. And so the next time I'm home, I say, Mom, how big was Chiang Mai? And she says, oh, it wasn't very big. Biggest thing in town was the uh, church. And she had some pictures. And I'm pulling down the photograph album. And she uh, makes a little aside. And she says, and that's when I stopped believing everything I read in the newspapers. I says, well, what, what do you mean? And she says, well, We'd been in this town, little town in Vietnam, and we went to Bangkok and, and to Chiang Mai. And, and the big story in the newspaper in Thailand was that there was a big battle where we'd been. She said, there was no battle. We were having a picnic. I, said, hmm. I turned back the pages of the, of the picture book, and, and there's some pictures of my dad and Colonel Lansdale. And then there's some pictures of these people having a, a picnic. And then there's this beautiful picture of my mother. She's just standing there smiling and her skirt's kind of swirling. And, and you can see Colonel Lansdale in this picture and he's got a plate and they're having a picnic. And it says, it says Eudora, because that was my mom's name, it says Eudora out from Saigon with Colonel Lansdale and North Vietnamese military leaders. So when you, when you read the history, Colonel Lansdale did bring down well over numbers are over a million people from North Vietnam down into South Vietnam. Uh -huh. uh, the basic, they were saying they were all the Catholics. They were bringing all the, all the Catholics. When the French left Vietnam in 1954 after Dr. Bien Van Phu, uh, they didn't leave the Golden Triangle. French intelligence and Corsican mafia stayed in the, in the Golden Triangle operating it for its uh, opium. After a while, Lansdale, who was our first person there, who my dad had been working with, asked them to, uh, the French, to leave. And they said, well, no. And so Lansdale went and got his own Corsican, and they had a very uh, a shooting war between uh, the French intelligence and, and our intelligence agencies. And we kicked them out of there, and we took it over. Okay? And this was some, uh, just some time before my dad's trip there meeting Lansdale in 56. And so what my daddy told me, he said, the Vietnam War is about drugs. And it was because, see, part of the whole shtick of um, what's been going on, and, and we'll talk about this a little later on, because, you know, there's a lot of conspiracy theories out there right now. And one thing that it early taught me is that uh, a conspiracy theory doesn't have to be true to make people jump, to be effective. One thing I've always told people is caveat lector. Be aware of what you read, but be very careful about what you believe, uh, because there's uh, lots of people with, with lots of agendas out there trying to get people to uh, believe one thing or another. And especially yeah. we've got a time here where uh, there's a paradigm shift and there's some very good books. One's called Generations, A History of America's Future, uh, and then there's a uh, sequel to that called Fourth Turning. Okay, and this has a lot to do with the dynamics of time and generations. 
the secret societies play with this cycle of generations and with the, uh, the swath of time, you might say, uh, again, to go back to what my daddy said, it, it, it's a game. Because what they were doing there with the Vietnam War is they were uh, taking American boys and girls, Canadian boys and girls, New Zealand boys and girls, Korean boys and girls, Australian boys and girls, and, and sending them to hell for one year. Okay, they know that after one year, if they survive that one year, they get to go home, right? Well, a bunch of those uh, boys and girls got uh, addicted to the heroin that was being proffered to them by anybody who was 12 years and up there. Okay, mm -hmm. and then they go home. Okay, not all of them stayed addicted, but a bunch of them did. And what does a junkie do? A junkie sells junk. My dad, you know, is telling me is they're out to opiate your whole generation because it was very interesting growing up in the late 60s, uh, early 70s. Uh, you know, there'd be a pot and then all of a sudden all the pot would go away and there'd be all this white, white dope, you know, uh, meth and, and uh, heroin, coca and all, all this type of stuff. You know, a bunch of us kids, we we basically we didn't go all the way to the to the needle. Uh, we mm -hmm. just stopped with the rolling rolling papers, and we did come together, okay, as hippies around a joint being smoked around a circle with a little bit of LSD thrown in, because LSD is uh, yeah you can use it to disrupt, but you can't use it to control. Opium, heroin, it has a pretty simple dynamic. Here, kid, you want some? Oh, you want some more? How about your friends? Because like it was very interesting growing up in, in that time because I would read these books about what was going on and I'd say, that really isn't what's going on. There's hinky stuff. There's people trying to direct this movement into being something, but the movement basically outgrew its masters or, or the, the, the evil doctors that were trying to create it. And I was like, I, I tell people, they tried to, uh, quote unquote, you know, give us MK Ultra, and we threw back at them uh, Microsoft and, and Apple, okay? Because what came out of the, the hippies uh, is the personal computer and the internet. The personal computer allows me to be a publisher, and the internet allows us to tell people about it. And those are the tools that we as a society are using to fight the corruption. That's what it is. It's people just lying, cheating, and stealing, using secrecy to do that. Mm -hmm. And so that's the dynamic that I see that is happening. We are living very interesting times. Those two books about the cycles of time that are manipulated by the people who are playing us as, as a game, who wrote those books? Do you, do you recall Strauss the authors? Howe, Strauss and Howe. Um, he was one of the uh, uh, Capital Steps, part of the, uh, one of the guys who was part of the Capital Steps uh, comedy troupe. Uh, he has since passed on, but they're, they're called uh, uh, Generations, A History of America's Future, and the other is called The Fourth Turning. And, and basically, we have four generations, a civic, an adaptive, a reactive, and an idealistic uh, generations that go through history that try and move us forward. Before in the 1860s, the civics generation, the people that were teens and preteens in the 1860s didn't come together. They didn't cohere. Some of them went to the generation before, some of them went to the generation after, some of them just went in the woods and did weird stuff. And because that was a civics generation, it made our republic 
a four cycle engine only running on three cycles. And because it was a civics generation, it allowed these people from the shadows to pull off uh, the Spanish-American War, which was about drugs, it's a long story, get us into the, the income tax system, uh, the fake money, the Federal Reserve. So you get those in place, and then what do you do? Well, you gotta get the people into debt. You get World War One, World War Two, World War Two. they did a thing called the victory tax. Oh, you know, we gotta beat them Japs and Huns, you know, oh, we're gonna make it really simple for you. You aren't gonna have to lick a stamp and send us this we're gonna go directly to your employer and take it out. And that's where withholding started. It's a, it's a long cycle of, of action. It's, it's a full spectrum corruption and a full spectrum exploitation of us and the entire civilized world, the whole, the whole globe. Right, well, we, yeah, we have a situation. I mean, uh, let's think about intelligence. And you know, if a person wants to do something actionable in the world, in intelligence, your first level is you take notes, okay? What can you take? You can take notes of what's publicly available. You can get subscriptions, all the newspapers, all the things, blah, blah, blah. Then your ne next level up is now can you penetrate communication networks? Can you see what's going on beyond the public sphere? Then you get to a level, well, now, Let's say I want to make something happen. I want to make this A go over here to B. So if you're getting, if you're getting operational, you've got a lot of concerns. You've, you've got to wonder, well, now, is somebody else able to see that I'm operational? Do, can, I, can I shield my operations? Can I game my operations? Can I hide my operations? Like uh, some birds, you know, put their, their eggs in other people's baskets, you know, and let those right. people raise it up. I mean, so there's, there's all kinds of different things. You know, it's like uh, with this uh, pandemic, one thing I, I talk about is that, you know, the chum is in the water. Okay, once the chum is in the water, you're going to have, especially the people that are up at the top level of, of operational, they're going to be floating their own agendas. And a big thing in intelligence is called hijack. And somebody over here is doing an operation and they've got a goal over here, okay? And so you just sit there, watch them, you know, they're working for their goal. Well, you know what the goal is, you know what they're doing. And so at the last moment, you go in and hijack the whole operation and, and make it towards your agenda. You start studying the, uh, oh, around the time of the Illuminati, you know, you find Catholics dressing up as Protestants creating secret societies, and you have Protestants dressing up as Catholics creating secret societies, you know, to, to create all these silliness. So basically, I just want to warn people on, again, be careful on what you believe, because there's a lot of people pushing a lot of things. Give us a brief synopsis of Anthony Sutton's, Amer is it America's Secret Establishment? America's Secret Establishment, an introduction to the Order of Skull and Bones. It really shows how one of the first things they did was to, to take over the education system, move teaching even, even farther away from how you relate to words, and showed how they created different organizations for their for their control because it's not about money they've already got all the money uh, that they need it's about control it's about control of your children and uh, education is is one way to do that 
How do they play life and play what they're doing as a game? And what role does a possible reduction of a large amount of the world's population factor in? We did this book called uh, Fleshing Out Skull and Bones. And, and in there, there's an article by a, a lady. Her father and her grandfather were both in the order of skull and bones. And she talks about cognitive dissonance, okay? They give the right honest things to carry, and they give the left honest things to carry. And then by having them fight each other, that disvalues the thing that uh, the honest things that they have and allow them to just paper it over with, excuse my language, uh, bullshit. What was the second? There was a second part to it. What role, if any, do you feel or have you found a reduction in world population plays in their plans? Uh, well, I mean, you can go back to um, Thomas Malthus. They feel that, you know, uh, there's too many, quote unquote, useless eaters. And, you know, they are the righteous people on earth and, and everybody else is, uh, I mean, I, I think, you know, when you, when you get down to it, a lot of the, the quote unquote thoughts and, and ways that these people think are, are insane, are, are, mm -hmm. are crazy. And uh, they have to do with, uh, you know, their religious beliefs. And I mean, why do the blue bloods think they're blue? Good question, why? Well, uh, it's, they believe that they're related to King David, okay, which is a nice way of saying, I'm related to Jesus, bow down. And there, there is possibly even some quote-unquote truth in, in, in all of that. People that have gone, uh, that have created hierarchies and a bunch of stuff uh, to give them power, and it's nuts, though. It, it, it's nuts because it's one world. I mean, it's one planet. And they uh, feel entitled or they act like they're entitled. And, the, and a lot of research indicates that they, they certainly feel that their bloodline, their lineage, their descendants have always been in power. They're always going to be in power. Right, right. And, and, and a lot of times their power is just like the Wizard of Oz. I mean, they don't really have all of this power. It's a game that we, you know, they get... They get us divided into factions to play the game for them. Now, I've, you know, I've come up with a uh, Leviathan, how, how I believe how they run the world. It's a Leviathan of three levels, and each level has three parts. The top level is mining, metal, and money. Okay, and you think about it. If you control the mining, where the metal comes from, that the money's supposed to be based on, you're in a pretty good position. And when I look at, uh, through the eyes of a social historian, look at Skull and Bones, they own a lot of mining stocks, and there's a lot of mining engineers there. And I had an author that could affect that level, and I resisted getting his book out because I knew it would cause trouble. But I got his book out, and he was dead in seven days. He got run over by a hit-and-run lorry in London. Okay, And this was no lightweight. His uh, uh, lawyer was the same lawyer. It's a lawyer for the King family, uh, Dr. Bill Pepper. The next level is drugs, guns, and oil. And that's a very active level. They use war and stuff like that. And this gives them their slush funds and everything. And then we're to, to activate all of this, it's media, movies slash music, because they've got to control the culture or it'll bite them. And then, quote, unquote, magic, their ability to hoodwink us and their preponderance and using mass trauma to scare the heck out of us. 9-11 yeah. at its core was a, uh, a mass ritual. 
uh, JFK assassination at its core was a mass ritual. Just like you can uh, affect a body, one person in, with MK Ultra, you can do that to a, a state, a city, you can do it to a country. Can you talk a little bit about what do you want to do on this podcast? What can people look forward to? Well, a couple things. Uh, you know, I'd like to inform people. I'd like to, you know, uh, sell books. You know, I mean, I, I hate to sound crass, but uh, publishing is a, is, a, is, a, is, a, is a terrible business, okay? Uh, the powers that be, uh, you know, try to put me out of business many times. Uh, we just need to, you know, a book is, a book is an amazing thing. A book just, you know, sits there nice and quiet and just sits there until somebody picks it up and, you know, hopefully reads it because uh, books change people's lives all the, all the time. That's why, it is, you know, I think, you know, books are amazing things. So I just want to, I want to get the books out there and not just my books, but uh, other books and, and get people to, uh, to read because there's just so much a book can do for a person. I want to thank everyone who's listened. Any concluding thoughts? Onward. Indeed. All right. Well, thanks until next time.